All right. Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, it's great to see you all. If you have a Bible, open it up to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1 is where we're going to be. If you want to turn there, um, that would be great. And uh, as you do that, um, let me tell you about date night and uh, clear all that up. Um, and uh, one thing before I tell you about that, um, we actually had some of these on hand from way back when, when we taught some of Galatians. Um, these are just books. They're in the bookshelf behind Next Steps. Um, it literally just has the different passage of Galatians, different passages of Galatians uh, grouped up with all of the artsy kind of pictures and things. Um, but it's just the scriptures. Um, if you want one of these, they're not for sale. You can just grab one until they're gone. Uh, but they're on the bookshelf behind Next Steps. Uh, you're welcome to it if you'd like some more creative ways to, uh, to get your nose in the Word of God. Uh, you're welcome to those things. Uh, we found them and do not want to sell them to you. So you can just grab one if you'd like one. Um, all right, date night. You're going to get all that you need to know about date night. Um, if you're listening to the podcast this week, here is the, the update on date night. Date night is next Sunday from 5 to 7 p.m. Um, you can check your children in um, before 5. Uh, anytime after 4.45, you can come. And this is just our gift to you. Uh, we believe that our church, um, if there's an area where the enemy um, will choose to attack our church, it's to w get in between your covenant relationship with your spouse. Um, we highly believe that that's where he would come after us. There's in multiple ways. He doesn't just pick one. Um, but we want to do all that we can to invest in your marriages. And one of the ways we can do that is just give you an opportunity um, every couple months to go on a date together. Um, so we're providing that for you. Um, if you have children from birth to fifth grade, you can bring them um, between five and seven or any couple minutes before five, and we will feed them pizza and hang out with them, play games with them, invest in them where you can invest in your spouse. Um, there's a QR code to sign up in the lobby. Um, we need you to sign up before Friday just so we can know how many are coming. So all you got to do is pull out the camera on your phone and scan that dude um, on your way out. In the lobby, they're available. Um, and everyone can participate. If you are out of that season and you don't have children, uh, we would love for you to participate in date night. If you're an empty nester, you can still go on a date with your spouse. In fact, one of you young couples, ask one of these empty nester couples to take you on a date and to pay for your dinner, and to tell you about marriage, and what it means to forgive one another, and all of those things. Um, seriously, I kind of joke, jokingly said that, but I know I could rattle off 10 couples in our body um, who are out of this parenting stage who would love to take you out and um, just get to know you, and hear your story, and invest in you, and encourage you along the way of parenting. And um, everyone can participate, all right? And you are on the honor system. I wanna be clear, as your pastor, we called this date night for a reason. All right, this is not, I'm going to go to the gym and she's going to go to the grocery store night, all right, while someone else is watching our kids. Do not let your spouse off the hook. This is a night for you to go somewhere to pay for a meal and to look each other in the face and talk about life. Um, we underestimate just how much we need that and how frequently we get it. Um, so please make sure you do that. And... Um, like I said, you're on the honor system there, but it is date night for a reason. And then lastly, um, if you're a single parent, I just wanted to say this, haven't talked to my team, but I know their hearts and they would agree. Um, if you're a single parent and you're in that season and you're dating and you want to participate in date night, that's great. But even if you're not, um, you are doing a noble thing, raising a family on your own. And we would love to give you a night to do whatever you want to do. 
So bring your children up here if you're a single parent and go do whatever you need to do. Go home and just sit in the quiet if you have to for a couple hours. That would be our gift to you. We would love to gift you that night. Um, so parents, if you're married, show up, drop your kids off, um, go on a date. Uh, if you're a single parent, bring your kids loudly and proudly and drop them off and we'll take care of them um, five to seven. And if you have teenagers that are approved to volunteer in our ministries and want to help, they're welcome to come and help. Um, but otherwise, uh, your teenagers will do just whatever teenagers do when you leave the house. So, um, yeah, on their own there. So, um, I think I've said enough. Five to seven, next Sunday night is date night. Drop them off up here. We'll take care of all the food and snacks and things unless you have an infant and you need to bring some of that stuff prepped. You totally can. Um, let's read Galatians. Um, Annalise Parada is around here somewhere. She's going to come up and read Galatians chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through 10. So if you'll stand for the reading of God's word, let's not waste any more time and let's jump in it together. Do you want to hold that? Okay, awesome. I told you 6 through 10, right? Yes. Okay, good, good, good. Just making sure. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Amen. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at these couple of verses this morning, God, as we look at your word, um, Father, I pray that you would lead us, you would guide us, you would teach us, um, Father, that we would see Christ, God, as he presents himself in the scriptures, that there is no other name. There is no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name under heaven by which we will be saved. It is only through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Um, Father, um, I pray for anyone in here um, that does not believe that, God, that they would see this morning, um, as Paul says, um, that they are troubled. Um, God, not just when it comes to when they meet you one day, but God, troubled now, emotionally, as we talk about today. Um, God, lead us, guide us, teach us. Um, pray that you would increase, I would decrease, that your word um, would do the work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. So, um, as Jeff mentioned, um, there was an earthquake in Turkey um, this past week, and uh, one of the things that was really neat is we sent a couple of staff members over to visit Jose and Tasha. Um, their trip happened before the hurricane and those kind of things, but when they came back, um, they were sharing observations about their trip um, to visit Jose and Tasha, and one of the things that was so fascinating um, was that they said, when you go to Turkey, or in Turkey, um, just the culture there, um, you share the gospel within the first five minutes of meeting someone. Within the first five minutes of meeting someone, you share the gospel with them. And I was like, wait, tell me more about that. Like, in America, we do this whole thing where it's, you know, we're going to build a relational bridge and all those kind of things. And what they said was, if you wait you know, six months, six weeks, whatever it is, to share someone what you believe. Um, in our culture, they will just conclude that your beliefs must not mean much to you if you waited six months to tell me what you believe. So culturally, and I'm not saying what we do here is wrong, but culturally in um, Turkey, 
One of the things you do is in the first five minutes of introducing yourself to someone, you tell them what you believe. So it was, it's, it's very interesting to, to see the differences um, and this idea that they would conclude, and it makes so much sense logically in my brain, that if I waited seven months or eight months to tell you something, you would probably conclude that, hey, that you know, might be something you care about, but it might not be of utmost importance to you. Um, there's another man, um, he passed away years ago. Um, he was a theologian, his name was Nabil Qureshi. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He wrote the book, um, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Um, he grew up in a Muslim home and was investigating um, truth and investigating all of these claims about Jesus. And he was troubled, as we're gonna talk about here today, um, just on what was true and where is he gonna go and who is God and who is Jesus and all of these kind of things. And one of the things that he noticed, um, you can read his book, you can watch his stuff on YouTube, it's phenomenal, um, especially if you interact with people who um, follow the um, Muslim faith and tradition and all of those things, I would encourage you highly, or the Islam, Islamic tradition, I would highly encourage you to watch those things. But one of the things he concluded as he was um, grew up in the Muslim tradition and investigating Christianity is he would go and talk to Christians, right? Surely they know. And he would go up to Christians and start asking them about Jesus and who he claimed to be. And he concluded one of two things, because a lot of the Christians that he talked to um, did not know the gospel. And he concluded either, as in his, this was his kind of synopsis of American Christianity, was either these Christians don't know what they believe, or if they do know what they believe, they don't care if I go to hell because there is no urgency on the part of the Christian in America to share the gospel with me. And I tell you both of those stories because our hope for this series, as we talked about last week, is one, that you would be set free by the true gospel, set free from all of the false gospels, but then we would remove this barrier of I don't know how to articulate or explain the gospel. The book of Galatians is explicit gospel. We got it in the first five verses, and now Paul's gonna double-click on all of these things when it comes to our relationship with the Old Testament law. What about the Old Testament saints? How were they saved? All of those things, Paul's going to zoom in on all of those different arguments and confusions that we might have. And as we walk through verse by verse through the book of Galatians, our hope is, one, that you would be set free if you've never received the true gospel, free from the power of sin, free from the burden of the Old Testament law, free from all of those things, but also that you would be well acquainted with the true gospel, to remove the barrier of, I don't know how to share it with someone. I don't know how to share it with the ones that I love. And we'll pray earnestly for God to remove the third burden of we just don't care enough to share. Um, but that's our hope for this series. So one of the things I wanna do is just give you a quick review of what we talked about last week. And I wanna do that just by rereading the first five verses and to give us a little runway. Because as we mentioned last week, and you can listen to the podcast, um, but Paul isn't just giving us an introduction, he's giving us the gospel. The Galatian church, Paul planted that church in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And sometime in between Acts 14 and Acts 15, these Judaizers had showed up and they had added to the gospel. They had added to the law. It's not just faith in Jesus anymore. It's faith plus obeying the Old Testament law, specifically being circumcised and following all of these feast days according to the Old Testament law. Hey, it's great that you believe in Jesus. That's JV Christianity. But if you wanna be varsity, you gotta get circumcised and you gotta follow all of these Old Testament rules. You gotta become Jewish before you can become Christian, which is why we call them Judaizers. They were trying to make Jew Jewish Christians. Does that make sense? And they would show up and 
Some people argue that they came by it honestly, and I can see that side of the argument, that if you imagine you grew up Jewish, Jesus grew up in the Jewish tradition, the Jewish um, people were God's chosen people, but they were chosen to the extent that they would birth and bring the Messiah. And then Jesus shows up and he says, no, I've, I'm, I don't just have good news for the, the Jewish people, I've got good news for all people. The angel shows up and says, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. When Jesus is presented at the temple on the eighth day, um, Simeon shows up and calls him a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That this isn't just good news for the Jews, this is good news for everybody. And you can imagine if you grew up Jewish, to suddenly all of these customs, all of these laws, to hear that you're set free from all of those would be very hard to grasp. And you would essentially watch your Jewish tradition die. So some of them, you could argue, probably came by it honestly, but Paul... If you read his language, he doesn't seem to think that they came by it honestly. And you could argue maybe some of them did and some of them didn't. But Paul is pretty clear um, that this was intentional deception. In Philippians chapter three, he calls them dogs, which is different than how we think of dogs today. Uh, Dogs are like children to us. Uh, They were not that way in the first century. It was a pretty bad term to call someone. But he gives them Before he talks about them deviating, he gives them the explicit gospel. So let me read it to you to kind of get a runway this morning. Um, Verses one through five, it'll be up there. But he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So it's not just this cute little introduction. What does Paul tell us? One, he tells us that his apostleship comes from Christ, which is another argument that he's gonna make in this letter because they weren't just attacking the gospel, they were attacking Paul's authority. But then he breaks out into the gospel, that this gospel comes from Jesus Christ and God the Father. It was the will and desire and plan of God the Father and the Son, and we'll even include the Spirit, because in chapter three, Paul brings in that we've, he says that we've begun by the Spirit. This is why we define the gospel as the finished work of the Trinity, that it was the will of God, the desire of God, to give you peace with God. How does that work? How do rebels and sinners and wicked people like me and like you, how do we who regularly turn from God, how are we made right with God? God became a man and gave himself for us. He lived for us, he died for us, he gave himself for us. And what did that giving do? It delivered us from the present evil age. And I didn't get to this last week because I think we spent too much time in Acts. But what he says here, um, we're not physically delivered from the present evil age. We're still here in this world. But we are spiritually delivered from the present evil age. We're freed from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That when you're set free by the true gospel, you are freed from the kingdom of darkness. Not physically. We still live in the broken world that we call earth. But when Jesus saves you, adults, children, when Jesus saves you, when you trust in Jesus' person and finished work on your behalf, he rescues you from the domain of darkness. He delivers us from this present evil age, that we're freed from our slavery to sin and our bondage of sin in our lives. We're set free from this 
um, corruption, this, this nature that's in it. And we, we still struggle against our sin and wrestle against our sin, but we're free from the penalty of sin. He puts a spirit in us and he sets us free from the power of sin in our lives. And one day, it's, it's a seal, it's a down payment that we'll be set free from the very presence of sin when we meet him in glory. But all of this happens because he gave himself up for us. And all of this was according to the will, the desire of God our Father. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. This is why Jesus gets all the glory because what's not mentioned in those first five verses of gospel? Me or my works, they do not save. Here's what we see in the first five verses. Jesus lived for me, he gave himself for me, he was raised, he delivered me. All of this was according to him. He planned it, he willed it, he called, he accomplished, he applies it, he secures it, he gets the glory. That's the good news of the gospel. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who has finished the work on our behalf. The gospel is the good news concerning the finished work of the Trinity. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. That's what we saw last week. And look at what Paul says in the very next verse. Verse six, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What's so fascinating about this, and I can almost picture Paul writing this. Usually in Paul's letters, um, this is where he gives the thank you section of the letters. He introduces himself, he tells who he's writing to, where he came from, gives us some of the setting, and then he moves into a thank you. In Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 1, Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, 2 Timothy, Philemon, in all of these letters, He says, I thank God for you. In Philippians, he says, I thank my God every time in all my remembrance of you and all of my prayers with joy for you. And then later he says, I long for you with the affections of Christ. And what's fascinating about this letter is we get none of that. You can see just how upset Paul is. He's pretty irritated. And I can just picture him writing it. Like, I am so astonished that you have turned so quickly. And you can picture the Galatians going, hey, everybody gather around. We got a letter from Paul. And great, great, right? Raised from Christ. And I am astonished that you, and like, okay, we've messed up apparently. And he jumps in and says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So he says, I'm shocked, I'm disappointed, I can't believe it. Um, later in chapter four, verse 11, he's gonna say, I fear that I've labored over you in vain. Strong language. Like, I fear I've wasted my time on you, coming to you and sharing the gospel with you because you've turned to a different gospel. In verse 20 of chapter four, um, he says, I wish I could be present with you to change my tone. Essentially, if I could just get in front of you, as all human interactions do, we get mad when we're on text, and I wish I could just get in front of you and and talk to you and share with you and tell you why you've deviated so my anger would subside, so my tone would change, so I could just get in front of you and talk to you and hear what happened and how you deviated and what's going on and settle the issue with you and no longer be disappointed and mad and irritated at you for falling into this false gospel. But he's so astonished. And why is he astonished? He says it right here. You're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, what's so fascinating about this is I so quickly forget the gospel. Um, This isn't new to the Galatian church. This is actually um, the nature of humanity for all of history. 
Um, this phrase so quickly um, in the Greek Septuagint, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, um, is the same phrase that's used in Exodus 32 when Moses comes down from the mountain. And what does it say? The Israelites had so quickly turned from Yahweh and started worshiping the golden calf. Um, Joshua, the book of Joshua ends and Joshua has this famous speech that Hobby Lobby has made lots of money off of where he says, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua ends, he's divvied up all of the, the land of Canaan, the promised land to the 12 tribes of Israel and he essentially says, you're on your own. Here's the gospel, he lays it out in chapter 23 and 24. You're on your own, now you gotta choose who you're gonna serve. The next book, the book of Judges, chapter two, what does it say? The people so quickly turned from the way of their fathers. They so quickly turned from the way of Joshua and they started worshiping pagan gods. And here we go again. Humanity turning from the true gospel. And Paul uses that same phrase. You have so quickly deserted him who called you. And I want you to see this. The word deserting there is in the present tense. It means you're, that you're turning away or you're falling away. And what Paul is saying here is they were actively falling away. They were in the process of turning away and he's trying to stop them. He's trying, he, he, the letter can't get there fast enough. I wanna explain this to you. I wanna call you back. I wanna restore you, as he'll say in chapter six, with gentleness. I wanna bring you back into the true gospel. But they are actively turning away. But notice what it says, or who it says they're deserting. Notice what he says there. You are so quickly deserting him. Notice he doesn't say you're deserting it. You're, you're not deserting a set of beliefs. You're not deserting a worldview. He says, when you depart from the gospel, you don't just depart from an idea. You don't just desert facts. You desert him. Why? Why would Paul say that? He doesn't say you just turn from the, the, the things I told you when I was there. He says, you desert him who called you, Jesus. When you depart from the gospel, you depart from Jesus. Why? Because God is the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that you and I get God. It's not just that we get some facts, we get some knowledge, it's that sinners get God himself. That you and I, rebels and sinners who have um, looked at our creator and said we'd rather have the creation, we'd rather be our own God, we'd rather go our own way, we'd, no thanks, we'll stiff our necks and our noses to the, our own creator and say we'll take what you gave us, your creation, and worship it. Those people can be restored back and have a relationship with God. That's the gospel. It's not just that you add a couple of beliefs to your life, but it's that you and I can have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe who created us and, and breathed breath into our lungs. It's that you and I get to know him. The beauty of the gospel is God is both the giver and he's the gift. It's that you and I get him. You can walk with him, you can know him, you can be led by him and shepherded by him. He conforms you into his image. We get to become like him, free from sin over time, which won't fully happen until he glorifies us when he completes the work, when he returns. But it's that you and I get to know him. If you're a reader, I would highly recommend, uh, John Piper has a book called God is the Gospel, and he makes this entire claim in his book that the beauty of the gospel is we get God Instead of the wrath that we deserve, instead of the justice we deserve, we get holiness and righteousness and a relationship with the God of the universe. John 17, verse three. 
This is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. You wanna know what eternal life is? It's that sinners get to know God and walk with God and enjoy God and be in relationship with God, free from the penalty of our sin, free from our shame, free from our guilt, free from our condemnation because it was nailed to Christ so that we get to walk in intimacy with God and be used by him and be led by him. The gospel is God. It is Jesus Christ in his person and his work. He's the one who calls, he's the one who sins, he lives, he dies, he rose, he does the work, he pays the price, he gets the glory. That's the good news of the gospel. And you and I get to know and have a relationship with with him. So Paul says the Galatians aren't just changing a set of beliefs. When you turn from the gospel, you turn away from Jesus himself. When you walk away from the gospel, you walk away from God. You walk away from Jesus. And what's so fascinating is, ironically, they were claiming to follow the true gospel and they were walking away from the real one. They were claiming that in their intelligence that they were moving into the varsity. In fact, they were walking away from the gospel altogether. They weren't just deserting the grace of God, they were deserting the God of grace in their pursuit of adding to the gospel. But what's even more fascinating Remember the context of what's happening here. What's happening? We often think that um, to walk away from the gospel is to walk away from God, which is true. Everything I just said is true. But notice what they were doing. They weren't walking away from the gospel. They were adding to it. So what does Paul say? Hey, if you add to the gospel, what are you doing? You're walking away from Jesus. If you add to the gospel, if you take away from the gospel, or if you walk away from the gospel, you walk away from God himself. It's not just departing from those truths or denying them, which you can do, and walk away from the gospel. But Paul says, if you add a single thing to the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, you walk away from Jesus. Either he finished it and he completed it all, or he didn't. And if you add to what he did, or if you take away from what he did, you no longer get him. Because he claims he was God in human flesh, he rose from the dead, and he finished the work. He is seated at the right hand of God. At the the cross, it is finished. It's done. I've completed it. I've lived the life you should have lived. I'm dying the death that you deserve, and the work is done. The gospel is not a spiritual alley-oop where Jesus put it on the rim, and we've got to come in and finish it. No. If that's what you believe, then you don't have Jesus, as he said he was, as he claimed to be, and you depart from Jesus. So anytime that we turn away from or we add to or we take away from what Jesus did, we walk away from Jesus. Does that make sense? Because he himself and the Father and the Spirit and the apostles and Scripture claim that Jesus finished the work. So if we claim that it's not finished, we walk away from the true Jesus. Anytime you add to the gospel, hey, that's JV, but now you gotta get circumcised. Hey, that's JV, but if you really wanna be a Christian, now you gotta speak in tongues. Anytime you add faith in Jesus plus anything else to be saved, you've walked away from Jesus altogether, is what Paul is arguing here. And notice what he says, verse seven. Not that there's another one, not that there's another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. What he's saying here is there is no other gospel. If you depart from the gospel, 
You don't have gospel anymore. There is no other one. There's not another gospel. There is only one gospel, and it's Christ alone and Christ crucified. Christ lived, Christ died, Christ buried, Christ raised for my justification, for my holiness, died for my sin, and seated at the right hand of God is my high priest and my mediator between God. And if you depart from that, you depart from him. You no longer have the gospel. Anytime you add something to what Jesus did and you cannot be saved by that message, if it's Jesus plus something else, if it's Jesus plus a couple of good works from me, Jesus plus me being a good person, anytime you add to it, you, you no longer have gospel and you cannot be saved by that message. So, Notice what happens, though, and I mentioned this as we began, but we're going to spend a a little bit of time here. He says, there is no other gospel, not that there is another one, but then he says this, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. And here's what I want you to see. Anytime, students, anytime you're led astray, children, anytime someone presents to you a message other than who Jesus is and what he's done, and we fall into believing that, adults, Anytime we fall into a different gospel, it will always result in trouble for the one believing it. Always. And I'm not just talking about the final trouble. When we meet Jesus, who finished the work, and we have to give an account for our lives, and he's not our representative anymore, we have to represent ourselves with our own works and our own life and our own sin and our own wickedness, and we have an eternity of paying for our sin. I would call that trouble. And I'm not even talking about that trouble. I'm talking about trouble now. Anytime you fall into a different gospel, it will always result in trouble for the one believing it. And that word trouble means to, call, um, to cause emotional turmoil or confusion. And anytime you fall into believing a different gospel, you are always gonna be troubled. You're always gonna be anxious. You're always gonna be fearful. You're not gonna have any assurance. If it's Jesus plus something else, If it's Jesus plus your good behavior and your good works, you're always gonna be anxious. You're always gonna wonder if you've been good enough, if you've done enough, if you've performed enough, and now I messed up again, so what do I gotta do to make up for what I just did when I messed up? If it's up to you, you will always be troubled. You will never have assurance. You will always be afraid that if I died, I'm not quite sure what the verdict would be. This is why we say you cannot lose your salvation. Because your salvation was never up to you. It's never dependent on you. And when I say lose it, I don't mean walk away from it. You can reject the claims of scripture or you can walk away. When I say lose, I mean um, when you sin that you're no longer saved. Because your salvation is not up to your own performance. It's not dependent on your good works. It's dependent on his. And the only way you can lose your salvation is if Jesus sins. And that can't happen. He's already finished the work. He's at the right hand of the Father. So if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, and when I say trusted, I mean you're no longer banking on your own behavior, your own works, your own righteousness, your own being a good person, and you're trusting in his finished work, his behavior, his ability to keep the law, his life for you and his death for you, that when you trust in that, your hope is in that, your faith is in him, you cannot lose it because it was never up to you to gain it. It's not dependent on anything about you other than believing in what he's done. Does that make sense? And any time that we fall into a different gospel, it will always result in 
turmoil, in trouble, in confusion, in fear, in anxiety, and a lack of assurance for the one that falls into that belief. So what I wanna do for just a couple minutes is to give you a couple rules to spot a false gospel. I wanna give you a couple rules you can write down mentally, kind of keep in, um, write them in your Bible, whatever you wanna do um, to spot a false gospel. And I'll give you a couple examples of these, and some of these are pretty obvious and others are pretty subtle, but I wanna make sure you see them and um, we'll see how far we get. We may be stopping at verse seven today and we'll pick up in verse eight next time, but let's see how far we get. So um, here's what it says. Uh, rule number one, any belief that undermines the person of Jesus is a false gospel. Any belief that takes away from the person of Jesus and who scripture claims him to be, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, sent from God, eternally existed, John 1, he has always existed in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was with God in the beginning and by him all things were made and the word became flesh. Any belief system that takes away, and these are most of the other world religions, they're, pretty e they're easier to spot than some of the more subtle false gospels. But this is a false gospel that changes who Jesus is, that he is God in flesh, he has eternally existed, he is born of a virgin, he has lived a sinless life, he died a criminal's death. Any belief system that says Jesus was just a moral teacher, he was just a good guy, he was you know, a pretty inspiring guy, but that's about it. He was just a nice man, good teacher, all of those things. This is, or any belief system that denies Jesus ever existed, which we have gotten so advanced in our study and academics today that no historian worth their salt claims that Jesus didn't exist. There's just too many records. We've looked at the evidence. There's just too many records of, of the person of Jesus existing. And what happens is if Jesus actually existed, then you gotta look at his claims. If he's a real person, you gotta look at what he said and what he did. And we have so much evidence that he rose from the dead. So then you gotta deal with that. So the atheist, the agnostic, the nuns as they're called today, that just don't believe in anything, don't believe Jesus was a real person, believed all this was fabricated, um, this would be a false gospel, a false belief system that undermines the person of Jesus as he's revealed in scripture. This is Islam where Jesus was just a prophet but he wasn't God, this is Hinduism and Buddhism, Jesus was just a moral teacher at best. This is Mormonism, where Jesus was a created being. And some of these, like Mormonism, will say, well, we believe in the same Jesus. The Jehovah's Witness will come to your door and say, yeah, yeah, we believe in Jesus too. But it is not the Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures. And Paul says, if you take away from Jesus, you no longer have a gospel, and you've deserted the true Jesus. Does that make sense? Those are a little easier to see. That's rule number one any belief system that undermines who the person of Jesus is as he's revealed in the scriptures. Rule number two is any belief system that undermines the finished work of Jesus. These are more dangerous because these systems, even some denominations, will use the same Bible that we're using and they will twist the scriptures and say, well, this is why you gotta add to the law. This is why you gotta add to what Jesus has done. It's not just Jesus, it's Jesus plus these other things but they will use the same Bible that you're using. And this is why we need to get our nose in this book. But we talked about it last week. This was Roman Catholicism in the early days of the church. It was no longer grace alone that saves. It was grace plus merit, plus your good works. 
It was no longer faith alone. It was faith plus all of the sacraments. It was faith plus confession, plus attending mass, plus practicing penance where you go to a priest and the priest was a little Christ who would actually forgive you and pardon you of your sins. One of the ironies of COVID was the Pope put out a tweet to all of the Roman Catholics and said, hey, just confess, because COVID, you couldn't go to confession and talk to a priest that close. He said, hey, just confess your sins to Jesus. And I wanna say, no kidding, right? (laughs) No kidding. But at any time, it's faith in Jesus plus any kind of work. And if you don't believe me, I'm talking about Orthodox Roman Catholicism here. Um, At the Council of Trent in the mid-1500s, about 1545 to 1563, the Council of Trent, in response to the Protestant Reformation that said you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church, put out this statement that said this. It says, if anyone says they're justified by faith alone, in so meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate with what Jesus has done, to obtain grace and to be justified. If anyone says that you don't have to cooperate and add to and work along with Jesus and that cooperation is not necessary, then he be prepared and disposed of by his own will and let him be accursed. The opposite of faith alone in Christ alone. If anyone claims that you don't have to add to what Jesus has done, then let him be accursed. And they even use the same word that Paul uses here, let him be anathema. And that word anathema just means cursed or accursed, but it specifically means to be set aside for God, to be cursed by him. If you think that it's just a free gift of God's grace, then you're kicked out of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church at the time, and you're cursed adding to the finished work of Jesus. That one's a little more obvious, but the ones that are a little more close to home are Jesus plus baptism. Baptism is not a bad thing. It's a command in scripture for the believer. But if you add believing in Jesus plus being baptized then saves you, then you no longer have the gospel. And the thief on the cross, Jesus lied to him when he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's nailed to a cross. What does he do? The only thing that um, being born again can cause you to do. He says, hey, this man's innocent. I'm guilty. We're getting what we deserve. He's not getting what he deserves. And Jesus says, today, you're gonna be with me in paradise. He recognized the innocence of Jesus and his righteousness and his perfection. He recognized his own sin. And he asked for mercy. Same thing you and I do to be saved. But as soon as you say you gotta believe in Jesus plus get circumcised, you gotta believe in Jesus plus be baptized, that's adding a human work to what Jesus has done. Now, baptism is a command in scripture that we are to obey once we are saved. After salvation, it is a great thing. It is acknowledging to the world that you follow Jesus as the Lord of your life. But it is not what saves you. It is the fruit of a heart that has been saved. That I wanna obey this command and follow in Jesus' footsteps. Jesus plus speaking in tongues, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30, speaking in tongues was a gift from the Spirit. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, not all speak in tongues, do they? Essentially, not everybody gets that gift. Not all were given the gift. So you can't require it to be saved. Doesn't work that way. 
If you have to add a work to what Jesus has done, you no longer have the gospel and you've deserted Jesus altogether because Jesus claimed that the work is finished. <clears throat> Those, a little more obvious, but Jesus plus moralism is one that we see all the time. It's not just believing in Jesus, but you gotta believe in Jesus and be a good person and then you'll be saved. You gotta believe in Jesus. Imagine the amount of anxiety and the lack of assurance you would have if you think it's believing in Jesus plus you have to be good. I would never have assurance. I mess up all the time. I would be anxious till the day I died and I would die anxious if I think that it's up to me <clears throat> to be a good person. Newsflash, we are not good people. Now, when we're saved, God removes our heart of stone, gives us the heart of flesh. He awakens us to the truth of his word, and we do good things in response to what he's done. But left to our own devices, you want to know my default setting? It's to wake up, and I'm my Lord. I'm serving me. I'm living for me. I'm getting after what's mine for my own name, for my own glory. Left to my own, I am not a good person, apart from the grace of God in my life. Imagine believing in Jesus plus being a good person. And we see this a lot in this Jesus plus this Southern Bible Belt religion, right? It's believing in Jesus plus you gotta do all these good old Southern gentlemanly Christian things to be saved, right? Where I come from, it's cornbread and chicken. Where I come from, a lot of front porch sitting. Where I come from, trying to make a living, what does he say? Working hard to get to heaven. We joke about that, but if that's what you think the Christian life is, you working hard to get to heaven, you don't have the gospel. You don't have Christ and Christ crucified and the work being finished. If this whole Southern mentality, if we're just working hard to get there, that's not the gospel. And Paul says, you have no gospel at all. You've departed from Jesus and who he's claimed to be. And you can listen to the song all you want. It's catchy. I'm not, you know, getting legalistic about it. But if that's what you believe about your relationship with God, where Jesus has done all the work and you just gotta finish the work with your good southern deeds, you don't have gospel and you are not saved if it's up to you. The issue with all of these is that to the, to the degree that your salvation is up to you, to that same degree, you're gonna have anxiety and a lack of assurance and fear. Because if my salvation is 1% up to me, I'm gonna be anxious because I can't complete the 1%. I can't be good, I can't do enough good works, I can't outweigh all of my sin and all of my bad works and all the times I'm selfish and all the times I'm only thinking about me, I can't do it. If you think about all the world religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, that believe in reincarnation, I could be reincarnated a thousand times and I would never be good enough. In fact, they believe that each time you do better, you, you, know, you progress, I would get further and further away. I just would. However much percentage in your mind your salvation is up to you, it's that much percentage that you're gonna be anxious and fearful and emotionally unstable because you, you think it's up to you. And you will never have assurance you will look at all these other religions that say, hey, here's the path. Jesus didn't do it. He didn't complete the work, but here's the path to do it. Now go and try, and you will never have assurance. This is why every time we gather, 
I don't stand up here and give you four ways to try harder this week. Hey, here's the Bible passage. Here's five ways you can be a little better. Here's five ways you can try harder to earn God's love. That's not gospel. That's religion. That's not the work is finished. Now go and believe it and go and do that. That's here's four steps to try and finish the work. Now good luck. That's why we don't preach that way. We preach Christ and Christ crucified in every passage of the Bible. We get to the gospel. We see what the standard is and the standard is good and right and pure. It's God's holy standard. And we see how we fall short. And we see how Jesus met the standard for us. And because he met the standard, now we're encouraged and empowered by his spirit to obey the standard. Apart from his spirit, we can't do it. But he's done it for us. He's given us credit for for doing it before the Father because he's done it. And now he gives us the spirit to obey, which empowers us to follow after him. Why don't we preach that way? Because we all need the gospel on a regular basis. We need to realize we don't measure up and we don't meet the standard and Jesus has met it for us. Um, Rule number three, and this one's a little more subtle, um, but any belief that says or where the goal of our salvation is something other than Jesus, if the goal of salvation is something other than Jesus, something other than you and I get Jesus, then you don't have the gospel. If Jesus died to give us something other than himself, this is where the prosperity gospel comes in. If Jesus lived and died so that I could be healthy and wealthy, that's not gospel. Does God long to give good gifts to his children? Yes. But does God promise us that every believer that puts their faith in him is gonna instantly get rich and be healthy? No. I could believe in him today and get cancer tomorrow. And he is still just as good. Why? Because I'm gonna live forever without it so I can endure it now. I have all eternity to live without my frailties and my failures and my diseases and all of those things. He actually promises us, in this world, you will have trouble. At the end of the book of Philippians, Paul says it was appointed appointed to us not just to believe, but to suffer. That scripture claims that we don't get to escape the, the, the brokenness of this world, but we're delivered from the spiritual bondage of our sins, so come what may in this world. If you put your faith in Jesus, he's the goal, he's the prize, and we get forever in heaven with him. So any gospel that makes the good news about getting something other than Jesus Christ is not a gospel. The idea that Jesus died, if I believe in Jesus, my cancer will go away. Or if I follow Jesus, I'll start making more money. Or follow Jesus and your kids will stay safe and be successful. Why are those dangerous? Because the focus of those gospels aren't on Jesus. They're on us. It's idolatry. It's I'm gonna use Jesus so hopefully he'll give me what I really want, which is health and money and wealth and possessions and all of those things. If your gospel, if your good news is focused on this life, then you've missed it. More benefits, more stuff, more shiny things on this earth, then it's not the true gospel. The true gospel is you and I were rebels against God. We deserve to be condemned forever and we get Jesus as our life, as our death, as our substitute, as our payment, and as our prize. And we get to spend forever in heaven with Jesus. Jesus did not die so that you can overcome your debt. 
Now, if you follow Jesus and live according to his words, that might happen. He created the world. He knows how it exists. He gives us principles in his word to manage our money wisely. It's not a bad thing to be out of debt. It's a great thing, actually. Scripture attests to that. But if that's why you're following Jesus, because you think salvation is no longer being in debt here on this earth, in your financial world, then you don't have the gospel. Jesus did not die to give us the earthly desires of our heart. Jesus died to change the desires of our heart. Apart from Jesus, my desires were all sorts of ungodly things. And the good news of the gospel is he removes that heart of stone and he gives me a heart of flesh and he gives me a heart to see him and treasure him and run after him and desire him. Does that make sense? You and I are not the hero of the story. Jesus didn't come to give us a makeover. He didn't come to give us some tips. He didn't come to be a supporting actor in the movie of our lives. He's the hero of the story. The other one that I want to mention, and then uh, we'll wrap up, is the, um, the common grace gospel. Um, and this one is so subtle. And I want to be clear and make sure that you get the, the, the definition of common grace is God's kindness that he bestows to all people, believer and unbeliever. Scripture says that he makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. That God in his goodness is generally kind to all people on this earth. The fact that you and I are breathing and living right now. The fact that many unbelievers in our city exist is God's common grace. It's God's kindness to all people. But I want to be clear, that is not salvation. And if someone asks you, if you are saved, if you've put your faith in Jesus and your response is, well, God has always been there and he's gotten me through some hard times, that is not salvation. That's God's common grace where God gets us through all of our hard times. From him and through him and to him are all things. To be saved is not just to acknowledge that God exists and he's gotten you, he's gotten you through some hard seasons of your life. That is still focused on this life and this world. To truly be saved is to acknowledge that I am a sinner and I don't deserve God's grace and I no longer trust in my own works to save myself. God sent a substitute. His name is Jesus. He's my substitute. I'm trusting in his works instead of mine, in his life instead of mine, in his death instead of mine. That is to put your faith in Jesus, not just to acknowledge that he's gotten you through hard times. Is it true? Theologically, that Jesus has gotten you through hard times? Yes, and I don't want to diminish that. But do not mistake that for your own salvation. Does that make sense? I want to be clear about that. Unless you have trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ to live your life and to die your death and to forgive your sin, you have not trusted in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? I want to be really clear. Because we live in this Bible Belt, where we think that everybody, because we have this general idea that people go to church, is saved because they recognize that God exists. And until you decide that I'm going to stand before Jesus one day and not trust in my own works, but I'm trusting in his, then you haven't accepted the true gospel. Does that make sense? And here's why I give you the true gospel. Because as I said earlier, all of us are prone to forget it. I forget it every single day. 
Now, when I say forget, I don't mean deny or reject it or, or no longer believe it. But my default setting is to wake up tomorrow and think that it's up to me to win God's approval, to run to this Bible and read this so God will be proud of me, to do good works so that God will love me, which is religion. It's not gospel. I am no better than anybody else. And to the extent, remember grace and peace, to the extent that I forget God's grace, I won't have peace. If I wake up tomorrow and I forget that Jesus has finished the work for me and I go out and try to complete it, talk about a day without peace. I will never have peace. It's to the extent that you and I remember his grace. This is why we encourage you to read your Bibles every morning. Why? So you'll be reminded that the work is finished and you won't go out and have to try to earn the work. You'll live from the work. To the extent that you remember his grace, to that same extent that you'll have peace. You could be in a season of your life where everything seems to be falling apart. But if you remember that Jesus came for you, he lived for you, he died for you, he forgives you of your sin, he paid for your sins on the cross, if you remember God's grace, you can walk through the, the most chaotic of circumstances with peace in your heart. I'm secure. He sees me, he loves me, he died for me, he adopted me into his family. And no matter what happens out there, when I remember his grace, I'll have peace. And for some of you this morning, you need to receive that peace for the first time as a gift of God's grace, the true gospel, the explicit gospel that Jesus Christ lived and he died and he gave himself and God raised him from the dead, showing and proving that Jesus' perfect life was sufficient to forgive our sins. How do we know? Romans 4 says he was raised for our justification. How do we know that Jesus' life finished the work? Because God raised him from the dead. He gave himself up. And this idea that the gospel is divine child abuse, where Jesus went to the cross unwillingly and God made his son die, is the furthest thing from the true gospel. Yes, God sent his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. But Jesus did not go unwillingly. He gave himself. John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd and I lay my life down for the sheep. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord and I have the authority to lay it down and raise it up again. The true gospel is Christ alone and Christ crucified. If you deviate from that, you deviate from him. Amen? There is no other gospel. There is no other name by which we must be saved. And if you wanna trust in that gospel, after we respond in song, I don't know, are we responding in song? I, need, I should, uh, should look at the, what's next. I don't know if we are or not. Um, we are, good. Praise God for the men in the back. As we dismiss, we'll have some people down front and we would love to talk with you, to pray with you. We will give up our afternoon, despite what games are on TV, to talk to you about what matters most, which is where you stand with God. Amen? That's verse seven. We'll pick up in verse eight next week. Father, we love you. God, thanks for your word. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. God, that the more we know the truth, it will set us free. The more we remember your grace, we will have peace. But God, also, the more we know your truth, the more we will expose the lies. The more we will be able to see the enemy's attacks when he tries to give us a different gospel. God, thank you that you are the gospel, that we get you. We give you all the glory for what you've done. You've done the work, you've paid the price, you've raised. 
You lived the life, you died the death. Father, all glory and all of our worship over these next few moments goes to you. To the glory of your name, amen.